Good evening. Welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library. My name is Vivian Fisher, manager of the African American Department here at the Pratt Library. This evening, it is my pleasure to introduce our guest author, Victoria Christopher Mary, who always knew she would become an author, even as she was taking an unlikely path to that destination. A native of Queens, Victoria first left New York to attend Hampton University, where she majored in communications disorders. After graduating, Victoria attended the New York University, where she received her MBA. As a writer, she is the author of more than 20 novels, and she has received numerous awards, including the Golden Pen Award for Best Inspirational Fiction and the Phyllis Wheatley Trailblazers Award for being a pioneer in African-American fiction. Since 2007, Victoria has won seven African-American Literary Awards for Best Novel, Best Christian Fiction, and Author of the Year for Female. Her 2014 NAACP Image Award nomination for Never Say Never was her third Image Award nomination. Several of Victoria's novels have been optioned to become movies, including The Deal, The Dance, and The Devil in the X-Files series. With over one million books in print, Victoria is one of the country's top African-American contemporary authors. Please join me in welcoming Victoria Christopher Mary to the Pratt Library in Baltimore City to discuss her latest work, Stand Your Ground. Thank you. Thank you so much. I am so excited to be here. I have been in four different cities in four days. Isn't that something? I, this morning I started out in Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, and where was I? David, Chesapeake, Virginia. They have me all over. So this is pretty exciting. I'll be in New York City tomorrow at this time. So it is always an honor and a pleasure to come here. I was just saying, wow, I got promoted to the big library, you know, so that, that, this is very serious. But what I'd like to do is just tell you a little bit about myself, how I got started on this journey. Um, tell you a little bit about Stand Your Ground, which I think is the most important book I've ever written. And then um, answer your questions. That's my favorite part before we go to um, actually signing books. So is that okay with you? So um, I might walk across the stage a couple of times, because I'm from New York, so you can hear me, right? I don't need a mic. Uh, but I might walk across the stage as I speak, because I have one of these Fitbits and everybody's trying to beat me, and I do not believe in losing. So if you see me walking around, just understand that. But um, I always tell people that I came out of my mother's womb knowing I was going to be a writer. I did. I loved, I'm sure the doctor slapped me, and I was like, where's the iPad? Because when I was a little kid, I loved to read. I loved to write. I was the cliche child that was underneath the covers with the flashlight, um, trying to hide from my parents so that I could read. In fact, my parents still to this day talk about how hard it was to punish me because most punishments go to your room. I'm like, hey, that's where all the books are. So my punishment truly was get out of this house, you know, because I just, I would do anything to read. And um, I, in fact, reading led to my love for writing. And I wrote my very first masterpiece when I was just seven years old. Now, a lot of people say, well, you're seven. How can you possibly write a masterpiece when you're seven? Well, you can if you're plagiarizing all the other masterpieces. Because let me explain what I did. I wrote something called Betty and the Witch. And it was about a little girl in red with a hood. It was about three pigs, three bears, seven little people, a good witch, a bad witch. I just had everything thrown in there, everything I had ever heard when I was seven years old. But I was in the second grade, and the entire second grade performed it as a play. That teacher changed my life. She, I didn't even know what that was. I didn't understand the feeling, but it was validation. Um, that what I was doing was right, I was meant to do it. The challenge was, as I was growing up, 
I never saw anyone in a book that looked like me. I was in high school when my li the librarian gave me a book with a black man on the back cover. And I said, so what's he doing on here? I, and she said, he's the author. And I was like, Richard Wright? I had never heard of him. And I was like, I didn't. And this is going to sound crazy, but I didn't know black people could write books because I hadn't seen ever. But I was 14 and had never seen that. And so, but then I was introduced to Maya Angelou and, and Claude Brown and Claude Anderson, and I just absolutely loved those books. And I really wanted to be a writer. But I didn't know what path to take. I had never met an author. I didn't know what to do. So I always tell people that when you're 17 years old and you graduate from high school, you do what everybody else wants you to do. And then you turn 40 and you do what you want to do. But I was 17, and so I went to college. I went to Hampton, and I did what I was supposed to do. I majored in communication disorders. And people say, well, how did you choose that? Um, because it wasn't like I knew what communication disorders was. I chose it because it was the only thing in the catalog that I had never heard of. I had heard of English, I'd heard of math, I'd heard of biology, so communication disorders, I said, okay, I'll major in that. And actually liked it until I got to my practical training, realized that wasn't for me. Um, and then also I was a really good student. I really wasn't interested in graduating from college and getting a job. I didn't want to work, so I went to graduate school. Because I was a really good student. Because um, I love to read. I love to write. You just throw some arithmetic in there, and you got it. And so I went to get my MBA at New York University. Um, and that was only a two-year program. It wasn't long enough for me. Um, so I got, came out, and I told my parents that I wanted to go into the Peace Corps. Because I really wasn't interested in working. And they sat me down in the kitchen. Seriously, I think this is bad parenting. They sat me down and they said, we are sick of you. You have cost us nothing but money. You're going to go get a job. And then I met this man, married him. He wanted me to work too. Everybody wanted me to work. So I had to go to work. And so I worked in corporate America, started out at General Foods in New York. My husband and I moved to Los Angeles, and I worked for Hunt Wesson Foods. But I never, ever, ever lost that desire to write. I knew I was going to be a writer. I didn't know how it was going to happen. I didn't know how I was going to get there. Uh, but I knew I was going to one day be a writer. And, but life kept getting in the way. Are there any aspiring writers in here? Life gets in the way all the time. That's why you don't do it. Um, and so time was passing and passing and passing. My husband really believed in my dream. When we got married, he brought me an Apple computer as a wedding gift. Now, this was 1981, and so it was an Apple IIe that was about as big as this room. Remember those? And remember how you had to put in the disc and take out the disc and put in the disc and take out? You had to do this dance with the computer. And so that's why I never wrote, because it took a half an hour for the computer to heat up. Um, but my husband said to me at one point, you know, if you don't do this, this thing that you, I really believe that you're supposed to do, one day you're going to be 80 years old and you're going to be very sorry. And that really scared me because I didn't want to be 80 years old on somebody's porch rocking back and forth wishing I had done it. So in 1997, I said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to write one word a day. I might be 80 when I finish, but I was committed to doing this. And that's what I did. In 1997, in April, I sat down. Some nights I came home and just wrote, she said, doubled my commitment and felt wonderful. But there were other times when I only felt like writing, she said, and I'd write an entire chapter. And that book, Temptation, because of the discipline every single day, I finished in three months. Now, let me tell you something about Temptation. That was my first book, and I, I self-published it only because it wasn't because I tried to get published with a major publisher. I had my MBA. My husband had his MBA, so we thought we were smarter than everybody. And so we figured we'd publish it and keep all the money. The only thing is about two days after we self-published, we realized we weren't smarter than anybody. Because that, those words, self, that word self is the biggest four-letter word in the English language. Because you have to do everything yourself. 
You know, after you, you actually write it yourself, then you have to publish it yourself, you gotta promote it yourself, and guess where all the money comes from? Yourself. It was way too much self in there for me. Just way too much. And so, I, this was back in 1997, so it was a different time than it is now, and um, I was able to find an agent just about right away. I sent it to the top four agents in the country, I went, into the, I went into a bookstore, looked in the acknowledgement section, read everybody's um, agent, then sent it to the ones that had the top four books. One person I haven't heard from, that was back in 1997, she still hasn't gotten in touch with me. One said no, and she and I are really good friends today, but she was one of the top agents in the country, and two said yes. Two said yes. And so, but it took my agent two years to sell my book. Because that book, Temptation, I don't know if any of you read it, but the thing that's so interesting about Temptation is that it was the first of its kind. Um, and meaning that, and I didn't know it was the first of its kind when I was writing it. I was just writing a book about people I knew. I mean, not really knew them, but people I could relate to and people I could understand. And so when my agent took it to the mainstream publishers. They did not like Temptation because they said it had too much God. And so she said, well, we're going to go to the Christian publishers because they're going to get it. Well, we took a book titled Temptation to the Christian publishers. You know what, you know? And so they were like, oh, no, we cannot publish a book with that. But I wanted to be published so bad. I said, I will change it. I will call it Crossing the River Jordan, whatever you want to call it. I'm serious. I wasn't going to call it anything. It was just the title. I wasn't going to be married to the title. But then they read the first 50 pages, and they said, oh, absolutely not, because this book had sex in it. Who knew? I had no clue that Christians didn't have sex. The Christians I was writing about did. You know, I kind of figured that's where we get the baby Christians from to keep this thing going. And it was really an interesting time for me because my husband was saying, you're going to have to choose. You're going to have to choose one side or the other. But I knew I was writing what I was supposed I can't explain it. That was a story that had been given to me. So I knew I was writing what I was supposed to write, and I stayed there. And it took two years for her, my agent, to sell the book. And what's so interesting is that I get called the first African-American Christian fiction writer Though the only challenge, the only people who have challenges with me are Christians usually. I tell my pastor that heathens love me. Um, but, you know, because I write edgy books. I write, and I think I write real stuff. Um, and so, but it's been a challenge sometimes. So I get all of these accolades for being a pioneer in Christian, and I did not do that. That's all God. I had nothing to do with it. I didn't know I was writing Christian fiction. I had never heard of it. I was just writing, and even to this day, I just write what's in my heart. I don't write to a genre. I just write. Um, and so I, my agent was finally able to sell uh, my first novel, Temptation, um, and in a four-book contract to the company that was called Time Warner at the time. And since then, my next 24, 21 books have been with Simon & Schuster. 21 books. Can you believe it? I remember, thank you. I remember when I had one book and three fans. My mama, my daddy, and my husband. My sisters were even suspect, you know? They, were not, they weren't really impressed. They still aren't very impressed. But, um, and now I can't believe I, I, I didn't see this road of having 25 books. So it's been an exciting and challenging, and wonderful, and anxiety-filled journey. Um, publishing has changed so much, as you can imagine, with the onslaught of all this digital stuff, and it has affected us a lot. But I'm still standing, and I still have a contract, and I always tell people that there are two reasons that I'm still standing. It's because of God, because I know I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, and my sorrows of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Oh my goodness, they come out, y'all come out all the time. 
um, and then the readers and the support. So I am so grateful, so grateful to be here. So let me tell you about this 25th book, uh, Stand Your Ground. I'm just going to use this for a second. I don't really need it. Oh, I always say when I get to heaven, I'm going to look. I'm going to be first, and I'm glad I got in. And then I'm going to be looking for Eve. Because I don't have anything scripturally to prove this, but I know this is her fault. And I think she's going to be the only person in heaven that needs a security detail. But, um, you know, it's interesting because uh, I do a lot of social media. And people call me on Facebook like the CNN of Facebook. Um, and, and people say that, oh, I don't even come home and open a newspaper. I come to your page. And I don't think that's good. I think you should go watch the news. But I do, like my parents were part of the civil rights movement, very, very active. My dad and Selma and just very active. And so I think it's part of my DNA to stay politically aware. So I was um, watching the second Michael Dunn, the first Michael Dunn trial. Michael Dunn, the man who murdered Jordan Davis. And if you remember in the first trial, um, he was found guilty of attempted murder, but it was a mistrial on murder, on the one who was really dead. And so my timelines blew up and everybody was so upset, and I wasn't because I had read the transcript of the Trayvon Martin. I read it like it's, I, like, I told you I like to read, but it does read like a novel. It's fascinating if you get a chance. You can find it online, fascinating. And the thing that stuck out the most to me in a Trayvon Martin trial was the judge's instructions to the jury. And so I knew exactly what had happened with Michael Dunn. Because just to make it a short, case, uh, just a, a short explanation, stand your ground simply means that you have no duty to retreat. And it's such an ambiguous law that it doesn't even provide for the fact that you can't start the fight. It allows you to start the fight and still not have any duty to retreat. Isn't that crazy? And, that, and it goes against everything we try to raise our children to do. It goes against what I, we tell our children, you walk away. You don't, there's no need to get into those altercations. But what we're saying with a law that's on the books in 26 states, we are saying that it is okay if you get into some type of altercation. And here's what the, words, the wording is in the law. You feel like your life is in danger or great bodily harm. Now, how can you disprove that what somebody felt? You feel, so that doesn't work. Um, and so people were so upset, and they were getting mad at Americans who were fulfilling their civic duty. People were getting mad at people on the jury. And I said, you can't get mad at them because if any of you had been on that jury and you followed the judge's instructions, and if you did it with your head and not with your heart, you would have done the same thing. Because you can't prove that somebody did not find themselves in danger. They did not believe that. And so somebody said on Facebook as I was trying to calm people down because they wanted to um, boycott Florida. And I said, how are you going to boycott Florida? You live in North Carolina, and it got the same thing. I mean, are you going to boycott where you live? And most people think it has something to do with Florida. And there were 26 other states. And so somebody said, you need to write a book and teach us. And I, I laughed, and then I said, maybe I should. And that's how Stand Your Ground got started, from a Facebook suggestion. And um, then speaking with my... Um, editor, we decided to make it a bigger book than just the case. So Stand Your Ground is told from two point of views. It's told from two women, one black, one white, both 33, both mothers, both with one son, though now one of their sons is dead. The, it's told from the point of view of the black mother who um, lost her son and the wife of the shooter who has a secret who could blow up the case. And the thing that's so interesting to me after people read it is that they say that they never thought to look at the other side. 
They never thought, because you know, it's so interesting, the judge the other day in the Charleston case, he said something that pissed everybody except for me off. He said that, what's the guy's name, Dylan? That's shoot, I don't even know his name. He said that his family, they're now victims as well. And people were pissed off, except that's the truth. Um, because can you imagine what it's like to have a child to, know, to have people know that you are the parents of a, of a boy that shot and murdered not, your life will never be the same. Now, I'm not taking any way, anything away from the nine victims. Trust and believe, because one of them was my sorrow. So I, I'm not taking anything away, but I'm saying that there are victims all around. The murderer leaves a lot of victims. And so that's what I wanted to show in this book, both sides, because we see the mothers, and we're grieving, and I know there's not a person in here who hasn't cried with one of those mothers watching them on television. Um, But there's another side to it as well, and it's going to be very interesting to see how you feel about that. So I want to read a very, very short part of Stand Your Ground, Um, You know what it's about, so I might as well just read at the beginning of it starting. And Janice and Tyrone Johnson are um, a married couple who've been together for 16 years. They've been married for 16 years. They've been together for a long time. They have a 17-year-old son who's on his way to the University of Pennsylvania. Um, And this book takes place in Pennsylvania. And I did that as a shocker. Um, because even a reviewer read the book, and he started reading, and he said, I've never known Victoria to make such a mistake. She put the book in Pennsylvania with Stand Your Ground, and then he Googled it, and he was shocked to see the states. Um, As far north as Michigan, or Illinois, or Arizona, or Kentucky, um, the other states you would know. You would expect North Carolina, um, Texas, uh, yeah, because I'm surprised they didn't start it. But Florida started it, actually. They, they wrote the first law. And in fact, last night I was on a panel, um, and I got to sit next to the state representative in Florida. They all came there to talk about Stand Your Ground in the novel. Um, he's written the law to repeal it. Uh, so a young man, and he's fighting it. But this is this, the beginning of the story starts off with Janice and Tyrone Johnson, and they have been married for 16 years, and it's still going. It's still hot. Everything's still going strong. And um, so this is the Monday after Mother's Day, and they've just spent a little personal time together, you know. And then they hear a knock at the door, okay? So you're not going to know where I'm starting, but you can try to catch up if you want. <laughs> Uh, The doorbell rang and a hard knock followed. Tyrone and I frowned. It was a little after nine, and Marquise and his friends knew that they could not hang out on school nights. Who can that be, I asked, pushing myself up in the bed. Tyrone held up his hand. You stay here. I'll get it. Before my husband could make it to the top of the staircase, I wrapped myself inside my robe and stepped into the hallway. Marquise's bedroom door was closed, which was the only reason why I was sure he hadn't bounced down the stairs to get to the door himself. By the time I made my way to the top of the stairs, Tyrone was at the bottom and opening the door. Mr. Johnson, the door was open wide enough for me to see the two policemen, one black, one white, standing shoulder to shoulder like soldiers. Yes, my husband said, His voice two octaves deeper the way it always dropped when he stood in front of men wearing uniforms. May we come in, the black one asked. Those words made me descend the stairs even though I wasn't properly dressed for company. Not that the policemen showing up could ever be called welcome visitors. What's this about, my husband asked. The policeman stepped inside, though Tyrone had not extended an invitation. Both men glanced at me as I stood there, gripping the lapels of my bathrobe. Ma'am, it seemed that the black officer had been assigned to do all the talking. What's this about, my husband asked again. The policeman stood at attention as if this were a formal visitation. Would you mind if we went in there? The black officer nodded toward our living room. Now, if the officer had been speaking to me, I would have said yes, because that was the polite thing to do. 
But Tyrone said, that's not necessary because my husband had been raised on the hard streets of Philly where a policeman, no matter his color, was never an invited guest. The officers exchanged glances before the black one said, Marquise Johnson, is that your son? Tyrone's eyes narrowed while mine widened. What's this about? That felt like the 50th time my husband asked that question. There's been a shooting. Oh, my God, I gasped. Did something happen to one of my son's friends? The officers looked at each other before the black one continued. It's your son, Marquise. He's been shot. That's impossible, Tyrone said. Marquise is up in his room. He yelled out, Marquise, come down here. Not even a second passed before I dashed up the stairs. Not that I had any doubt. Of course Marquise was in his bedroom. He'd come home while Tyrone and I had been, well, you know, spending a little personal time together. I mean, Marquise hadn't come into our bedroom when he came home, but he never did when our bedroom door was closed. Tonight he had been home by eight, nine at the latest. I was sure of that. I had never entered Marquise's bedroom without knocking, but tonight I busted right in. And then I stood there. In the blackness, though there was enough light for me to see that Marquise wasn't at his desk and he wasn't on his bed. Marquise, I called out anyway, then I rushed into the bathroom. Marquise, just like his bedroom, I busted in the bathroom and stared at the empty space. Then I felt my heart pounding, though I'm sure the assault on my chest had begun the moment the policeman had told that lie about my son being shot. I returned to his bedroom and swung open the closet door before I crouched down and searched under his bed. Marquise, I screamed, wondering why my son was playing this game of hide-and-seek, something that we hadn't done since he was four. I rushed back into the hallway and bumped right into my husband. He's not up here, I said to Tyrone as he grasped my arms. Did you check the kitchen? Did you check the family room? Janice. I looked up into Tyrone's eyes, which were glassy with tears. What? I frowned. You don't believe those policemen. He nodded, and I shook my head. They're lying, I said. They're not lying, Tyrone said softly. They showed me a picture. Now I whipped my head from side to side because I didn't want to hear anything else. I could not believe that Tyrone would accept the word of men in blue when he always said the police couldn't be trusted. Well, if he wasn't going to look for our son, then I was. Marquise, I screamed out his name. Now a single tear dripped from my husband's eye. Janice. I tried to remember the last time my husband cried, and I couldn't think of a single time. No, I screamed. Marquise is gone, he said. No, he's dead. Why would you believe them, I cried. Why don't you just believe me? My husband looked at me as if I was talking foolishness, and I looked at him and begged him to tell me that he was wrong, or he could wake me up from this nightmare. Either would work for me. But Tyrone just stared into my eyes, and as I stared into his, I saw the truth. Not many words that Tyrone had shared had made it to the understanding part of my brain, but four words did. Marquise, gone, shot, dead. Marquise is gone, I whispered. Tyrone nodded. Someone shot my son? He nodded again. And now he's dead? This time, Tyrone didn't speak a word. He just pulled me close, so close that I could feel the hammering of his heart. But I didn't want Tyrone to hold me now, because if what Tyrone had said was true, then all I wanted was to be dead, too. Yeah. So I don't mean to take anybody down. <laughs> but I do promise you, you know, now let me tell you, I told you why I wrote the book, but I think it's very important for us to understand this law. I think if you read it, I think we'll go into action. This is a legal license to kill. It's a legal license, and we have to do something about it. We have to. And the challenge is, is that it's a state-by-state -state law. So nationally, we could fight it and, and come together, but it has to be repealed state-by-state. State. But I'm okay with that. I'll do it one state at a time. 
And the challenge with it is as I'm standing up here talking about repealing it, a state like Arkansas right now has it up for vote in its Republican um, state Congress. So it's going to go from 26 states to 27 unless we do something about it. Um, because I hate to say this, but stand your ground only seems to work when it's our boys on the ground. And so we have to do something. We have to either repeal it or reform it. And that's what I'm hoping this story will do. Now, I promise you, there are some laughing moments. You know Victoria Christopher Murray is not going to keep you down the whole time. Um, but I promise you that you'll feel a little bit of sadness, a little bit of relief, a little bit of chuckles in there. Um, you will cry. You know, I was editing the book um, one day. Now, I remember I wrote it, but I was sitting in Starbucks crying. The lady came over and gave me a tissue said, you okay? I said, it's just my book. <laughs> I mean, and she just, <laughs> I don't know, she really looked at me pitifully. I'm not sure she thought I was all there, you know. Um, but you will have a few of those moments. But I think you'll walk away. People say to me um, that there's three things that happen at the end. First, you know, they, they realize they haven't been breathing, so they take a deep breath. Um, then they say they sit there for a moment, and then they get a glass of wine. And I say that I needed to buy some stock in Moscato, because if I'm going to increase wine sales, then I need to get some money from this. So. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So what I'd like to do is open it up for questions about this book or um, any of my other books. Or, and this is my favorite part, so. So please ask a question. Somebody got a question. Hi, Cora. Oh, she wasn't going to do all that. She's like, I'm in the front. Oh. If I, now, why you tell me at the end? I could have, like, done more. <laughs> First of all, Sora, thank you so much for uh, coming out. Thank um, you. Thank you. So appreciate it. Um, I moved my mother here about, what, two years ago from Orlando, Florida. Okay, mm -hmm. and she had been once we left New York. She had been in Florida for over thirty years. Mm -hmm. So with all the stuff that she's going, you know, people are saying, you know, what is it about Florida? She was saying it was the devil. It was just hot. <laughs> it's just so well, hot it, down there. Well, um, it is hot. Yeah. So you know, with the Kaylee Anthony thing going on, yeah, my dad, yes. he was living. They were out searching for oh. the baby and all that. And then with Trayvon Martin, that mm -hmm. was huge with George yeah. Zimmerman, and you know, us out there. Um, in the, you know, in Eatonville, Florida, which is the oldest city, oldest black city in America, is oh, in Eatonville, which okay. is outside of Orlando. Okay. And, um, you know, they were out there rallying and stuff like that. But you doing this book is bringing a lot of light to us as a people and to people in general mm -hmm. about what's right and what's wrong. Yeah. And I do appreciate you doing that. Um, Hopefully, you can open this up and do it, you know, to a lot of the colleges. Yes. Like you did at Florida a and We yeah, have a yeah. lot of, you know, we yeah, have we a lot Yeah, we did that of, last night. Yeah, we have HBCUs here. So, we have um, Eastern Shore, Morgan, Coppin. Okay. Sojourner, while it's still open. Uh, Bowie State and Howard's up the street. Yeah. So, um, hopefully, you can do something like that. But I just want to say thank you um, for coming out. Hopefully, we can do this on... Uh, you have it on Kindle and yeah, it's on Ki Kindle? it's everywhere. Okay. It's on Kindle. Now I can't sign it right. when it's right. on yeah, Kindle. Right. So you just have to pretend that it's signed. But, but you know, I was saying maybe this. What I was gonna say, and I don't. Maybe you could write a letter to. I mean, we have um, a couple of. Uh, I have a lot. We have stores in here. Yes. Um, but you know, some of the past presidents from chapters here as well. Maybe you can write a letter to national headquarters, mm -hmm. and maybe you could do something like this on a platform. Yeah. And I'm bringing this out as yeah. well as the source being here yeah. for embody the embody. Well, well that that's what the national is very aware of this book. Okay. Good. Um, and they really want to give it to the young boys. You know, this is the first book I've ever written that goes beyond my normal market. Mm -hmm. This is for men and women, young and old, black and white. Right. And I just love it. I was 
finishes writing a book, but I love it. But yes, for Embody, there's two things that they're trying to do. Get um, chapters to do arts and letters and social action together. Yeah, that's right. Those are mine. And to get um, to get them to do it together. So that's Tallahassee did that last night. Tallahassee Arts and Letters Social Action came together and they did it at Florida State University. And Benjamin Crump was invited and he called at the last minute saying he was working on a case. But I was sitting next to the police chief. Uh, the Florida State Representative who's trying to repeal it, a uh, law professor, it was wonderful. I mean, I didn't feel like I should have been up on the stage with them, but there are so many people fighting for us in this. There's so many. So, um, but I'm going to start with yeah. our sorority and get the word out. Good, good. And as well as the other organizations, because there's a lot that are out there besides just the NAACP. I mean, yeah. the Latino, I mean, it's just... You know, it's a whole bunch. Yeah, I just want people to understand. And that's what this was, knowledge, education, and entertainment at the same time. Thank you, Sora. Yeah. Hi. Yes, um, I wanted to thank you for coming. Thank you. And talking about this subject, and I want to thank you for also uh, writing the book, educating us more and more about this situation, because I'm a law student. I live here in Baltimore, but my school is in uh, California, where my So um, I think that Stand Your Ground is a license to kill black people because a white racist can easily uh, get an argument with a young black man coming out of Walmart or coming out of the store and shoot him because of the fact that he said, I stood my ground, I uh, feared for my life. But I just wanted to make a comment. Um, now, you know the reason for that, right? Because, because the law is so ambiguous. It's just that it's open for judgment. Yeah. And laws should not be open to opinion. And so when you use words like, if you feel your life is in danger, there's no way to measure it. Um, and so it's just an ambiguous thing. I don't know if it is a license to kill black people. I think it's a license to kill. Now, there's a problem with the judicial system, and that's totally separate, where the judicial system is not equal. But the law itself is a license to kill, period, because I could use it. Now, what, it may not work for me, but it's a license to kill. Like, for instance, with the Jordan case. Yes. It was so much lies that the man made up about, you know, why he did this and why he did that. Yeah, and he didn't get away with it. He did not. He used stand your ground. Now, stand your ground is a law. It's not a defense. So it's the self-defense thing that they put on, and then they use the stand your ground law as part of the self-defense. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, national uh, legislation needs to be drafted to stop all this excessive force uh, by uh, white racist cops. And I think also if many uh, blacks stick together and stop thinking they're better than you know, one another, then we can get a lot done in this society because it's crucial that we, as a people, come together with a mindset to fight, rally, protest, and march. You have unarmed and armed police who are getting away with murder and who think because uh, here in Baltimore we had what is called the Maryland Law Enforcement Bill of Rights that tell police officers to do what you want to do, you get away with it. And also I think that people just have to come together because, you know, every month, every month we have young black men yeah, we see, we do see it a lot, and I think it's, I think it's been happening, and now social media and iPhones and things make it better. But I do want to say something about. I purposely did not put a policeman in here, um, and you know what? There are seven hundred and fifty thousand policemen in this country, and what we see on television is such a small fraction. Now, I do believe that there are cops who are racist, just like I believe there's other people who are racist. But I think we have indicted a profession that should not be indicted. I really do. I just think that there are so many. There's 750,000, and if we count up the cases, it's a small fraction. I am not supporting those people. Trust and believe. I'm not, but I just think that I don't want to indict an entire no, I'm profession. Indicting, I'm not indicting all police officers. What I'm saying is, if you see your fellow officer doing something wrong, 
say something about it. I.e., in Buffalo, New York, there was a black police officer who tried to stop a white Caucasian officer from almost literally strangling a man, choking a man. And he beat her up, punched her in the face, and she lost her pension, lost her job, and he was able to resign and I think retire or something. And I'm like, you know, just, just like with the case in Charlotte, South Carolina, with the guy that goes in and kills nine people. This guy, he goes in there, kills nine people, they find him in his car, he gets out of the car, they, build a, they put a bulletproof vest on him, and then take him to McDonald's or Burger King, wherever they took him. If that had been a black man. I agree. I agree. It wouldn't have been no, it, it wouldn't have been no bulletproof. He would have been dead on the ground in the morgue. It wouldn't have had no McDonald's for lunch. I agree. I, I agree with that. I do agree with that. Hi, Joy. Hi. How are you? Okay. How, so thank you again, just like everybody else has said, for, for doing this. Um, you mentioned a lot of what you did. Thank you. To um, bring this book to life. My only question, um, you obviously are very knowledgeable. Tell me what you learned about these laws and, and yeah. the situation in this process. What was something that was new to you? Um, That's a good question. Um, well, I learned the exact wording. Um, no duty to retreat. Um, which I said, but that's what I told my daughter. You do have a duty to retreat. You know, I used to tell her that. Um, and then I learned that the judge, you don't have to even use stand your ground as a defense. In George Zimmerman's case, he did not use stand your ground because there's something that you have to go through with Florida to see if you can even use it. He didn't use it, but the judge used it in her instructions. And the judge is allowed to do that. That's what I mean. It's just too ambiguous. She felt like putting it in, and then once you put it in, and um, so I learned that. I worked with um, an attorney in Pennsylvania who um, fights a lot of these cases. So um, I really, really learned a lot. All of my consultants, whenever I write a book, I speak to other people. I don't think any writer can write a book by themselves. So I kind of talk the plots out. This is the first book where 100% of my consultants were men. 100%. And you'll be able to tell by the, sh the ending. <laughs> you'll know, because everybody says, oh, that wasn't a Victoria Christopher Murray ending. I really enjoyed writing the ending, but it wasn't me. I saw Raphaelis. This woman's a one-woman <laughs> wrecking crew on making sure that Stand Your Ground gets sold everywhere, not only in America, but she's taking it to Mars. <laughs> well, um... Actually, I just want to say thank you, as everybody else did, but more importantly, I'm a person of action. We tend to get so riled up when it first comes out and then it dies down. So my question to everybody and yourself, what are our next steps? Petitions. We need to really start actively putting things into action because, as you said, just this little bit of time, I'm sitting in this audience, I'm thinking, oh, my God, I didn't know that. And we are supposed to be leaders of our community. So our community, they're, I guess they're really dependent on their leaders. Because mm -hmm. I work in a school system, and every day I'm reminded how just how much our community is not aware of things. They don't know. So they come to the teachers. They come to the counselors. Which mm -hmm. you know, and they come to the principals. But if we don't know... How will they know? And they are in the front lines of, you know, this is happening to, they're the victims. That's most, right. Mostly. Not just all, yeah. always, but mostly. Mm -hmm. So my question to you, my question to the audience, what are our next steps? Well, you know, it's really interesting because last night, that's what I was asking the people that I was sitting on the panel with. And in every state where there is a stand your ground law, there's a repeal stand your ground committee. And so whether or not, this is the biggest thing. Even if you don't live in a stand-your-ground state, take a stand. Pick a state, any state, and find out what's going You can Google and find out what's going on. And, and if they're doing petitions, phone calls, trying to get initiatives on the ballot, it's taking place at the state level. And just because 
we don't live in a certain state doesn't mean that we can't have an impact. Um, we just had a, a Sara be elected mayor of San Antonio. Now, I have not even lived, I've never lived in San Antonio, ain't lived in Texas, don't want to live in Texas, because they got, you know, that Perry guy, Rick Perry, Ted Cruz and them, don't want to live there. But you know what? I worked on her campaign. I worked on her campaign from D.C. and from Los Angeles, and they will send you names and numbers to call. You can, and every $5 helps. Sometimes people think that they don't have any money to give. Every $5 helps. So, um, and, but I think you're right. You have to take action. And so my first action was doing this. And this is a, this is a stretch for me. It's away from what I normally write. And it was very uncomfortable. Uh, because it, it's not safe. And I was very afraid of what people would think about it, especially the ending, um, because I call myself a Christian. Uh, and so, so I stepped out, and people have to step out. And I'm gonna cont- I keep saying I'm going to be a one-woman wrecking crew against this law. Hi, Sora. Hi, Sora. How are you? Fine. Um, I'd like to thank you for coming to uh, our Delta Authors on Tour. Yeah, we Back had fun. Back in March, we had a good time. We had fun. Yeah. Um, our Social Action Committee, and I'm the chair of Arts and Letters for Baltimore Metropolitan Alumni Chapter, we will be having something, and you will be. Um, we will try to get you on our calendar. Of course, the book club is. Yeah. Um, you don't we have also, to try. You know you got. Yeah, Y'all yeah, know we, you got. We, they should just say not to be polite. Yeah. She just. She should have said, and you'll be there, Victoria. Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> also, we need to uh, get to the church community. Yes. And oh. one of the reasons why is because a lot of things are happening in the church. Oof. Even though it came to the media through the media with Charleston, South Carolina, but things like this have been happening over and over mm-hmm. again. We just heard about the last church that was burned last down. Last night, This yeah. is the second time that, church. that particular church was burned down. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of issues to attack, and the church uh, community needs to be aware. Of That's a very good point. That's a very good that. point. Um, if you'd like to connect to the Baltimore um, Christian community, I'm available. You can use me. I will, because that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Right. And, you know, when you think about the civil rights movement, right. that's where it started. We, it started. Right. So um, that's a really good so point. Don't, don't ignore that community. Good point. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Hello. How are you? Good, good. Hattie Knight from Authors Talk Live radio show. Hi, Hattie. Pat oh, Johnson def- and I are here. Oh. I, I just did an inter- I love these ladies because they know how to interview. If there are <laughs> any authors you. in here, you got to get on their show. Thank they you, know how to you. interview. Um, I'm so excited to see you here and get to meet you in person. Um, I know we talked about the book on um, Sunday. And one of the things, and by the way, the, it's Authors Talk Live on WPBRadio.com, Sundays <laughs> 2 to 4. Um, but we had the opportunity to discuss with you um, the viewpoint um, that we always see the, in the books we, and on TV, the angry black woman. But in this case, we're looking at the viewpoint for, from the shooter's wife. Yes. Um, how hard or how much of a stretch was it for you to build in that storyline? Um, because a natural uh, tendency would be to go with what you know or go with the easy part. How hard was that for you? It wasn't hard at all, and I think that's because this thing that I do is a gift. I know it, if I, like I know my name, that I've been given this as a gift by God, and he would never give me the gift incompletely. So I have a complete gift, and it allows me to like go into the characters. And I think that the reason that the, the shooter's wife is so empathetic, the reason that you want to empathize with her, is that there was a piece of me in there. You know, um, it wasn't at all because there are this shooter, any shooter, any murderer, they leave victims all around. And so once I understood that and believed that in my heart, it was 
a, a really, um, I don't want to say easy, because the book was not an easy book to write, because I wrote the book, right? And, and I normally do four drafts of every book. And so how, why did I cry every draft? And I would be sitting in my living room saying, Vicki, this is stupid. You know what's going to happen. You, but I would just sit there and cry. And I've never had a book do that to me. I think it's changed me as a writer. I don't want to write frivolous books. I'm not calling anybody else's books. But from this point forward, I want them to be important. Um, I, I've, I've written enough of, the, I want them to always be entertaining. I'm an entertainer. I will always remember that. I just want them to be important. Like I started reading all these laws. And if you, you we need a, a stupid laws in America book because my next book is about one of the dumbest laws on record. Did you know that if a person rapes, a, if a man rapes a woman and a child is conceived through that rape and the woman keeps the child and the man goes to prison, did you know that once he serves his time, he can come out and get parental rights in 20 states in this country. That's the dumbest law ever. And so I'm going to write a book about that. That's my next book, and I'm going to take that law down too. I'm just going to be a law buster. Because when I found that out, that's ridiculous. And there are women who now have to face this man twice. They're victimized twice. So I'm going to tell that's my next. So I just need to stop reading about laws. <laughs> On behalf of Fred Library, we thank you for coming. And a couple of announcements. Um, first, um, we have some flyers on the table for upcoming offers, so please take some and do attend. Victoria will be signing at the end of the hallway. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you. Thank you for coming. You know, I know, I understand that. Oh, thank you for coming because I understand that your time is the most important thing you have. So the fact that you would spend a little bit of me, me with me means a lot. Now, if you enjoy Stand Your Ground, tell everybody you know. Thank you so much.